Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is poet Rebecca Lindenberg. Clouds, mountains, flowering trees, difficult things, things lost by being photographed, things that have lost their power, things found in a rural grocery store. These are some of the lists, poems, prose poems, and lyric anecdotes compiled in the Logan Notebooks. It's a remix and reimagining of the Pillow Book of uh, Say Shonagon, a collection of intimate and imaginative observations about place and identity and the language we have and do not yet have for perceiving the world around us. Rebecca Lindenberg is author previously of Love and Index, and uh, her poetry, essays, and criticism appear in such magazines as The Believer, Poetry, Diagram, uh, Iowa Review, Quarterly West, and many more. She holds a Ph.D. in Literature and Creative Writing from University of Utah. She currently teaches in the Creative Writing Program at University of Cincinnati and in the Queen's University Low Residency MFA Program. The Logan Notebooks was winner of the 2015 Utah Book Award, and it's published by the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University, part of the University Press of Colorado System, and part of the Mountain West Poetry Series. It's a pleasure, Rebecca Lindenberg, to welcome you to the program. Thanks. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. Yeah, so you're in Cincinnati? I am indeed. Uh, so how, how long are you going to be out there? For a while? Or is it just for um, a, yeah. a year or uh, well, the um, the original plan was I would be here for a year, but um, it looks like um, it's possible that it might last a little bit longer than that. So we'll see. We'll see. Okay, we've got a little bit of echo in in the phone line there. I wonder you're you're not on speakerphone, are you? I'm not on speakerphone. Okay. I um I do have my headphones on. Uh, do you want to try taking the headphones off? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's see. All right. What that sec. does. This is this a little bit better. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not hearing the. It was just a faint echo, but uh, better without it. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, I want to start with a little bit of your background. You were you were born and raised in the is it the New York area? I uh, no, actually, um, I grew up mostly in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, okay, I had it. Palo Alto, California. Had it completely opposite. Um, <laughs> okay. And then you went to uh, your undergrad work at the College of William and Mary. That's got to be right. an interesting place. Why did you pick uh, William & Mary? Uh, well, when I was about 17, my family relocated to Northern Virginia. My uh, father worked for the um, U.S. Department of Energy. And the very simple answer is that the College of William & Mary is a public school. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, and <laughs> gotcha. so it was, it, was, it was available to me as, a, as then a resident of Virginia. Um, but... It's actually, I'm not sure how many listeners might know this, um, it's the first chartered uh, college and university in North America, chartered by King William and Queen Mary in uh, 1694, and uh, Thomas Jefferson went there along with several other signers of the Declaration of Independence and early founding fathers, and um, it, was a, it was a really great place to go to school. Um, Colonial Williamsburg, where William and Mary is located is still a living museum of colonial life. So it was also a really odd and sort of idiosyncratic and anachronistic place to go to school because you'd go to the local grocery store for like Diet Coke and cat litter and there would be a lady in a bonnet and petticoat leaving on her boyfriend's motorcycle. So <laughs> it was a richly imaginative place to be. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that must have been quite the, quite the place to go. But some <laughs> distinguished uh, uh, alumni, including, I think, John Stewart. Indeed, 
he, he yeah and rebecca lindenberg so um <laughs> i wonder uh do you have your book with you i the, sure do logan notebooks i wonder if you could just read the the opening poem clouds with pleasure clouds cloud-shaped book opening cloud-shaped like a sphinx cloud-shaped like a steam engine blowing steam cloud-shaped like a ufo cloud-shaped like a handbag cloud-shaped like the first thing you spoke when we met cloud-shaped like a peacock or a cloud-breathing dragon cloud-shaped like an old-fashioned clock cloud-shaped like a rabbit chasing a crow Cactus-shaped cloud, lampshade-shaped cloud, cloud-shaped like your laugh, cloud-shaped like a roast chicken with wee chef's hats on its feet, cloud-shaped like a cartoon drawing of a cloud, cloud-shaped like a horse ridden by a monkey wearing oven mitts, cloud-shaped like Texas or Wales, cloud-shaped like a comet, cloud-shaped like a fading demand, cloud-shaped like a boot or a bottle, or a branding iron with a sun in the middle, cloud-shaped like a map of the sky, cloud-shaped like a rhapsody, like a fever dream, cloud-shaped like a man helping a woman brush off her skirt, or a woman lifting her skirt, or a dance in which they become clouds. Hmm. Clouds, that's uh, the first poem in the collection, The Logan Notebooks. I'm talking with poet Rebecca Lindenberg. Love the line, uh, cloud-shaped like the first thing you spoke when we met. Um, it's, I wonder, sometimes, I don't know, there, there's a temptation to pretension, there's a temptation to put too much on it. I noticed in an interview with McSweeney's, uh, you talked about what poetry is. You said there's a general misconception that you write poems because you have something to say. <laughs> I wonder if you talk a bit about that. Uh, right, I mean, I think that um, one of the things that I think Makes, you know, I've, I've taught poetry for many years now, and, and I often hear friends or, or students or family members of mine who pick up one of my books to read it say that they think that poetry is too smart for them or poetry is difficult or poetry is hard. And I think poetry is hard, um, but not because poems are puzzles that poems have written to try to trick a reader um, or to force them to, um, you know, kind of riddle out the meaning of the poem, but because, as you say, um, as I as I told my editors at McSweeney's as well, I think when we have something to say, it's it's usually we usually feel pressed to communicate it in in kind of prose language, the kind of language you and I are using right now. It's when we have something we don't know how to say or something we can't quite get at or something we haven't really puzzled out ourselves that I think we turn to poetry uh, to sort of write about them. I think poetry is a way that we make discoveries about the world through language. And so at the center of every poem, I think one of the things that makes poems difficult or challenging is that at the center of every poem there is a kind of of mystery, something that may even be mysterious to the writer themselves. I think a good example of uh, kind of poetry that's more, a little more toward prose and style uh, is, uh, I think it's the third poem, September. I wonder if you'd read. Uh, it's on page four. Read I'm sure. This definitely paints September. a picture. 
My guy stands beside a sign on our storm door. No smoking within 20 feet. Oxygen tank in use. Ashing into an empty brown bottle. A young trucker lives across the cul-de-sac with his pretty girlfriend. She has a limp and lends me her hairdryer. When he's home, he drinks until he's numb to the thunderous sound system or shows us all of his guns. He coats his knives in anticoagulants. But one night, he brought out a high-powered telescope and honey whiskey. We could almost see the popped bubbles in the moon's concrete surface. His girl doesn't come out much when he's gone. He says she has an internet addiction. Then he sips a little of the honey whiskey back into him and says something about bedding Mexican women while he was on leave in the Marines. Only he does not say bedding or Mexican or women. Hmm. I... I've not known that couple, but I've I've seen them. I think you know, I've, I've lived near that. I think couple. everyone has everyone has seen or known or encountered that couple somewhere at some point. Yeah, and it's it also this gets into the language we use and don't use, and you're indeed you're sparing us. You know, you're sparing the reader <laughs> um, <laughs> by pulling the punch a little bit there, right? Because he. Say that he doesn't actually say "butting" or "Mexican" or, or "women." Uh, but, mm, but we, perhaps I'm also sparing myself yeah, from sparing yourself. what he yeah. would have actually said. <laughs> but by using those cues, we I think we pretty much know what he what he said. It's it's interesting that uh, and and you talk about this in, in the poems. Um, some things we just don't have language for. We we can approximate. We can we can try, but we we don't. One of your poems says we don't yeah. yet have the language for for this. Yeah, I think that one of the things that um, that draws me to continue writing poetry um, is that that really in, in sort of insatiable um, hunger to 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 get it right, to, to find the language that makes something feel described or realized or understood. Um, and that is, I think, a, a really infinite, infinite project because um, um, there is there are so many things that are you know so multiple and so complex and so so challenging to try to feel, to try to articulate, to try to perceive. There's there's a language that we're always looking for that I think is always just a little bit out of reach. Uh, by the way, the Logan Notebooks, Logan is that's Logan, Utah. That's just right. To, just to make it clear, and you you lived in Logan. <laughs> I did. I lived in Logan for from from January of 2012 until August of 2013. Not a terribly long time, but long enough to become fond of it. Yeah. In fact, you 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 uh, dedicate the book to your Utah students because you I think you taught at University of Utah. I I taught it. Um, I well, I have taught at the University of Utah, but I was teaching at Utah State when I was. Oh, Utah Logan. State. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, and this is a remix and reimagining. I'm reading here. Uh, you can confirm this of uh, the Pillow Book uh-huh. of Say uh, Shonagon. Uh, tell me about that's, the Pillow Book. That's right. Um, well, Say Shonagon is a fascinating character. Um, she was a a lady in waiting to the Empress of Japan um, at the court in the 11th century. Um, she was not 
um, originally from um, a, a really high-boring family. So she came to court as a as a young kind of outsider to court life and as a very ambitious and highly intelligent young woman who then wrote this extremely famous, now famous, text called The Pillow Book. Um, and The Pillow Book is probably, if not the first, probably the best-known example of a genre of Japanese poetry or Japanese writing called Zuihitsu, which is Z-U-I-H-I-T-S-U. I think I'm spelling that right, Zuihitsu. And in Japanese, it literally translates as following the brush, which comes from kind of calligraphy writing, uh, but translates loosely um, into English as randomness or occasional writings. And in about 2004, maybe, a friend of mine in Salt Lake City, Jeff, gave me a copy of the pillow book. Um, he, he gave me a translation by a scholar from Columbia University named Ivan Morris. And he said, I think this is right up your alley. I think you're going to like this. And not only did I like it, I became you know, kind of a little bit obsessed with it. Um, and partly, I think, because Seishanagon is um, is such um, a, a genius observer of the world, and her observations are are they're incisive and they're beautifully described and they're highly detailed and they're extremely specific um, and they're opinionated. She doesn't draw back her opinions, but they don't sound authoritative. She makes observations rather than claims. And I found that to be a really um, compelling uh, way of, of looking at the world and writing about the world. And as you read through the pillow book, um, these kind of fragmentary lists, like things that have lost their power, is one of the lists that she makes. Or things that lose by being painted is one of the lists that she makes. And um, elegant things, hateful things, or lists of trees, or lists of flowering trees. She's very, very specific. A place emerges, a narrative emerges, characters emerge, and this whole world and this whole context uh, kind of comes into relief as you read the, the book. And it's a remarkable sort of emergent narrative to experience as a reader, and I found myself just so fascinated by this text, um, I wanted to engage with it somehow. I wanted to communicate somehow. I wanted to, um, you know, take my feelings being so inspired by Seishanag onto my own page in some way. Um, but I wasn't really entirely sure how to do that. And then when I moved to Logan, I found myself writing a lot about Logan because I found the culture of Logan to be fascinating. I found the natural landscape of Logan to be extraordinary. And I found myself writing to sort of make sense of my, my place and my place in that place. Um, and I felt, as I think Say Shanagan felt when she initially um, began her pillow book, I felt a little bit like an outsider to this, to this you know, community and this environment that I found myself in. And somehow... The, the notebook form of the pillow book felt um, like the most natural form for 
um, creating a kind of repository of observations and discoveries that I was making during that time. I want to go to break uh, soon, but I wonder if you could read uh, just a couple of the short poems before we go to break um, in the list vein. So page 51 and 52, um, things that lose by being photographed and then things that have lost their power. (laughs) Sure. Lifted directly from Seishanagon. Things that lose by being photographed. One night, when the moon is very full and sugaring the snow all over our backyard, there we are. A bearded man and a small woman in blue rubber boots, dancing slowly to no music, while a penny-colored pit bull picks up first one foot, then the other, trying to tell us to let her inside. Things that have lost their power. Anyone who feels they have to lie. An adult asleep in their candy-colored childhood bedroom. A talented cellist at a karaoke club. Someone who loves to read but can't always see. A penny-colored pit bull carried from the car in the arms of her person. He could be so gentle. Her shaved leg with its black gash of stitches was still numb from knee surgery. She never whimpered, but she peed from the pain of it. Yeah, very, very evocative. Um, Thank you. Uh, and uh, <laughs> th- th- this line really hit me: an adult asleep in their candy-colored childhood bedroom. I, I, <laughs> I don't have a candy-colored childhood bedroom, but I've I've had the experience of, you know, go, going home, perhaps sleep, for sleeping in that bedroom. Spider-Man yeah. sheets. Yeah, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> things that have lost their power. Yeah. <laughs> and and you go from playful to you know to to painful uh, there as well. I, I I hope that the the book from poem to poem and, and maybe within poems hits a lot of different emotional registers that 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 would certainly be in keeping with my experience of Logan Utah. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break when we come back more with Rebecca Lindenberg. Um, her uh, her collection, The Logan Notebooks, is the winner of the 2015 Utah Book Award, and um, we are hearing poems from the from the book. And uh, talking with Rebecca Lindenberg, who has joined us from Cincinnati, where she is uh, teaching you know, at the University of Cincinnati. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about, and you've written about this, Rebecca Lindenberg, you have been pressed into service from time to time as an interpreter of Utah. People ask you, <laughs> why did you move to Utah? And uh, we'll talk about that. You've written about this in a blog, and there's some poems about the West, anyway. Uh, We'll talk about that when we come back. Rebecca Lindenberg, The Logan Notebooks, more following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. What kind of leader is best is a national debate in a presidential election year. The media generally favors a brash, vocal, audacious person who claims to have the answers. But history favors humility. Most presidents, business leaders, and church and civic leaders face unique problems every day. They need to be humble enough to ask for experts, to seek advice, to clarify the best course of action. While we need leaders who see the big picture, we also need leaders who can ask the right questions and move us forward to the next set of problems. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business. 
a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour today is poet Rebecca Lindenberg. Uh, she uh, got her Ph.D. at University of Utah, has taught at the University of Utah and Utah State University. Her latest collection is The Logan Notebooks. It's a remix and reimagining of The Pillow Book by Say Shanagan, a collection of intimate and imaginative observations about place and identity at the intersection of human and the world and the language we have and do not yet have for perceiving it. We're hearing poems and talking with Rebecca Lindenberg, who joins us from Cincinnati, where she teaches at the University of Cincinnati. By the way, the Logan Notebooks is winner of the 2015 Utah Book Award. It's published by the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University and Mountain West Poetry Series. Um, so you've written a couple of uh, blogs. I mean, you've written many blogs, I expect, but a couple, I think, have had resonance in Utah. In 2012, March and November of that year, um, on thebestamericanpoetry.com. And I think you've gotten some reaction to this, positive and negative. Um, the, the first one is titled, Welcome to the Jello Belt. <laughs> and the second one, Funeral Potatoes. And, of course, right. people in Utah instantly recognize <laughs> those foodstuffs. Uh, you, you talk <laughs> about culture and community. It's very interesting uh, blogs. I like this line in your introduction to your blog about the Jello Belt. Um, we sometimes joke that Utah's unofficial Chamber of Commerce slogan should be Utah, not nearly as bad as you thought. <laughs> and that reminded me of, of, of an actual proposed slogan at one time, which was Utah, a pretty great state. Which, which is, and I think they, they uh, discarded that because what they were trying to go for was pretty and great. But it turned out yeah. to be, uh, Utah, hey, we're not bad. Um, <laughs> I had no idea. That's really funny. <laughs> so you're, 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 as I mentioned before the break, you're sometimes asked to interpret Utah. And I guess people ask you, well, why did you go to Utah? What's your answer? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the simple, practical, logistical answer is that I, I came to Salt Lake City in, in 2003 to pursue my Ph.D. at the University of Utah. Uh, and my, my reason for choosing the University of Utah was, was entirely based on the terrific people um, who teach in the program there, um, and much less to do with Utah as an actual place. And, in fact, I, I think I had been to Utah a couple of times prior to that on, uh, you know, kind of road trips with my family and uh, friends, but I didn't really, I, I could never um, have claimed to really know anything about Utah. And, but over the years, uh, while I lived in Utah, I came, you know, I came to really love it dearly. Um, the landscapes are, you know, unfathomably beautiful and varied. Um, it has this sort of unique um, culture because of its kind of um, LDS pioneer history. And uh, it's, you know, it, and it's a place that's constantly sort of evolving and changing as our immigrant communities grow and um, as the world um, and the people in it also kind of grow and evolve. And, and so I became fascinated with Utah and then I, and then I kind of fell in love with it. Um, and I have often taken great pleasure in, in being, uh, I went to an, uh, a kind of fancy artist colony in New Hampshire called the McDowell Arts Colony 
and everyone there was either from New York City uh, or from somewhere in Europe, except for me. And when I when I told I, I took a, I took a kind of great pleasure in telling people, yeah, I live in Utah, um, and then immediately being invited to um, explain myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking back to that your proposed slogan, Utah is not as bad as you think, which I. I <laughs> I would actually maybe embrace a variation of that just to, uh, I uh, can't remember whether I actually saw this or whether I heard about this. It's it's memory. Um, but Oregon, at one time I heard it put up billboards saying, you know, visit but don't come here to live. They were trying to, they're tr- you know, they're trying to keep the population down. I would embrace an, a slogan such as you've, <laughs> such you proposed to, you know, keep the population down here. We, we love our state and we, uh, you know, we welcome people, but... Uh, doesn't get overpopulated, we'll be okay. Uh, exactly. Th- Sometimes I say it's, it's actually sort of a good thing that Utah's reputation outside of Utah is um, is is kind of mixed. It's something that people don't really know what to make of Utah because I think if people knew, our property values would go up so much none of us could afford to live there anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you, you've, you've had a good experience in living in Utah. I have, actually, like. yeah. Yeah. Sure. I wonder if you could tell me about, and you have these in your blog, uh, you can go to bestamericanpoetry.com. Um, and by the by the way, the uh, website, that's probably be the best place to go, and then you have links over to that. It's rebeccalindenberg.com. Uh, so you, ha- you talk about a couple of experiences, and I wonder if you'd um, share those with us. Uh, first of those is going with your Mormon, uh, your boyfriend Joseph's Mormon family in Layton. And you had a typical Sunday dinner, which was the roast. And right. as, as you were describing this, I, I was surprised that you were surprised because, you know, I, I grew up with the roast. Uh, tell me about that. <laughs> well, I mean, it turns out that you know, this, this is sort of, I guess, part of, uh, part of Utah culture. You know, I grew up in California, and my family certainly had traditions. Um, you know, Friday night pizza was, was kind of one of our big ones. Um, but the, the kind of Sunday dinner and the roast and the, the rolls and and all of the kind of stuff that came out on the Utah table um, was just totally new to me. I as I as I said, I was I, I kind of came to Utah as sort of an outsider and and, and a lot of the stuff um, and a lot of the stuff was um, you know it was it was a completely new um, tradition or ritual, um, but one that I found really fascinating and. And in particular, um, and in some ways particularly um, Utahan, uh, in the sense that, you know, on one hand, it's, it's a Sunday family thing, um, and so there has to be enough food for a whole, whole lot of people. Um, but also this kind of strange paradox, and I write a lot about food in the Logan Notebooks as well as on the blogs, but kind of the strange paradox of um, having these wonderful, glorious, um, homemade treats, you know, home homemade mustard, homemade rolls, home pickled beets, and then mystifyingly, or it was mystifying to me, um, like canned green beans. And I remember thinking, of all of the things on this table, the easiest darn thing to make is the green beans. Why <laughs> on earth did those come out of, of a can? Um, and my ex-boyfriend explained to me, you know, that that part of kind of family dinner traditions include rotating out the food storage. And growing up in California, we had food storage um, because of earthquakes, you know. But it was nothing like 
the kind of food storage um, that I encountered in, in, in Utah families, which is, which is a completely different thing. And, uh, um, and I, and I found it, I, I, I remember I kept asking people sort of, you know, what is a, what, what is the food storage, you know, for and finding this kind of, um, this kind of, like this kind of very Western, I think, um, sense of preparedness for who knows what, you know, it could be a natural disaster, it could be the rapture, it could be anything, but, but we have to be ready for the apocalypse. It could come at any time. <laughs> and you also, you also talk about uh, the fact that that's a lot of people to feed, you know, on a, on a fixed budget. Yeah. So yep. that's another purpose yep. for, you know, one main uh, dish and then the, the surrounding dishes may not be, you know, maybe a little on the inexpensive side. Uh, there's another sure. thing you you talk about. This is in the blog um, about six months after that. This is from 2012. Uh-huh. Uh, you write about community. This really resonated with yeah. me as, as well. Um, and, and there's good side of community and the kind of a dark side to tight-knit communities as well. So you talk about when when your partner, Craig Arnold, wonderful poet, uh, passed away, 2009. Yeah. Um, and, and this is for people who don't know. He, he was in Japan went out to hike on a, a volcano and, and was never found. Uh, so this, right. un- understandably, is shocking to you, and you're going through all sorts of emotions, and you had a community that rallied around you. Indeed, I did. I was very, very fortunate in the friends that I had, mostly through the um, creative writing program at the University of Utah. Um, but I, you know, as you, as you say, um, Craig's disappearance was extremely sudden and very mysterious. Um, and there were many, many weeks of um, search and rescue teams looking for Craig. And then that was followed by um, kind of coming to terms with the idea that he was gone and may never be found. And then that followed by grief. So there was this long sort of dizzying um process of, of, of getting a grip on the, 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 the whole situation, um, during which time uh, I, I never, I don't think I, I think it was over a month that I never cooked a meal for myself. I had um, two friends in particular, my, my friends Catherine Coles and my friend Kim O'Keefe, um, who are also terrific poets, um, who rallied um, a whole bunch of people together um, to lend a lot of support. And not only, you know, it, it was less about having people bring me food so I didn't have to go grocery shopping. And, and it was more about having these days that seemed to kind of stretch on endlessly in anxiety and panic and then grief um, shaped and formed and given meaning by my community and by my friends. Uh, I had to get out of bed. I had to take a shower. I had people to talk to. I had people to distract me. Um, there was, you know, there was always um, this sense of, of community, of kind of breaking bread together with people that provided this, this, you know, really grounding sense of reality in a time that felt just terribly, as, as I think all tragedy does, finally, just felt terribly, terribly unreal. And it's something for which... I will always be grateful. I think I'm a different person, not only because of of the loss of my partner, but because of the 
the response of my um, my friends and my community um, to that loss. I I think in a time that I probably could have felt more alone than ever in my life, um, I really never felt alone at all, which was which was you know really marvelous and and uh, kind of miraculous actually. And you write, I'm just going to quote this paragraph from the blog. Uh, you say, this was, sure. not a, this was not a ward community. Um, this was mostly a community of people with whom I worked in the graduate school at the University of Utah. And I'm not saying this couldn't or wouldn't have happened in Brooklyn or Washington, D.C. But I do know that when my mother called and said, just come home, my instinctive response, though I did want my mommy, was, I am home. Right. Yeah. And then you that go. Kind of felt. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- then you go on to write the, the very next sentence. Now, any strong community pays a steep price for its cohesiveness. What if you expand a little bit on on that? And uh, here you're talking about, I guess, a strong religious community. Are you in the Mormon community? Well, I actually I think that this is true of almost any kind of community. Um, I think certainly, you know, every community is is characterized or defined or self-defining in in many many different ways. Um, you know, I think some communities, uh, you know, are kind of, in, you know, self-defining by uh, religion, but, but it's that's certainly not the only the only one. Um, but I do think, um, regardless of the the way that a community defines itself, um, there's a way in which all individuals belonging to the community, um, you know, kind of give up part of their individuality in order to be um, consistent with the values and the ideals um, and the characteristics of the community as a whole. I think that that's inevitable, Um, you know, whether you live in a really progressive community, if you live at, you know, if you live on like a vegan hippie commune, then, you know, you, you give up certain things like eating things that are not vegan, you know. I mean, so it just depends on, on the kind of community that we're talking about. But I think it's really important as communities to be mindful of what we ask of our community members in order to form healthy, whole communities. And the dark side, I guess, that you mentioned that I sometimes see in communities is asking people to, to hide um, because there's some aspect of themselves that's inconsistent with the values of the community they feel they belong to. Um, And, uh, for example, um, I certainly know of individuals who have kept their sexuality quite secret um, in order to feel like they belong more fully to their community, and they worry that if they were open about their identity, that their belonging in the community would be compromised in some way. So, you know, I think that it's it's something to be mindful of that as we want to form, you know, really, really whole, really tight, really meaningful um, shared communities, um, that we make a special effort to be mindful of the individuals in those communities as well and their needs and their rights and their dignity. It's, um, as we talk about community, uh, juxtaposed in my mind is this uh, myth of the West, the, you know, the American West, mm-hmm. of the rugged, in, the rugged individual. And I, I think uh, sometimes when we talk about the West and we talk about tight-knit communities, um, you know, they're, they're sort of in opposition. But we, 
There is. There is. Well, we are not necessarily consistent. And I, I think of Walt Whitman when I think of this he, here. He said in, in Song of Myself, Do I contradict myself? Very well. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. <laughs> I think this could be said of any of us individually. I think it certainly could be said of any community in the West. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. I wonder, um, before we go to another break, uh, I'd like to have you read another couple of poems. Um, sure. And this, I think it's pages 39 and 40, um, mm-hmm. talking about being an interpreter of Utah and, and perhaps the West. Uh, so they're called the West and the Real West, these two poems. <laughs> sure, I'm happy to read these. And happily they go together. Um, the West. We read about daredevil priests, conquistadors in finned helmets and their shin guards, fur traders selling otter pelts to railroad barons, Chinese laborers, gunslingers, good-natured whores. We rooted for abalone beads in old Indian midden heaps and tide pools, towing anemone to watch them pucker. On gold rush day, in bonnets and petticoats, boots and cowboy hats, with pie-tinned props, we panned for gold in sandbagged baby pools, traded fake treasure for a bowl of PTA chili at the cardboard front saloon. On one family trip, a darkly tattooed man in a wife beater forbade my sister and me to go anywhere near the open mine shaft. Mom heard dueling banjos whenever he spoke, but we liked his soup. We hiked the high Sierras, learned to staunch a wound. We learned to swim out of riptides, how to pop a dislocated elbow back, vinegar a jellyfish sting, or better yet, not get stung in the first place, snapping like bubble wrap the air sacs and kelp washed ashore. We did the Pledge of Allegiance in English and Spanish. We did the Lord's Prayer in English and Spanish. Jenny Chin and I ate our after-school wontons with ketchup. It wasn't all bonfires and guitars, of course. In fifth grade, a girl from sixth grade was killed on the train track. In sixth grade, a jogger was mauled to death by a mountain lion. And I got the diagnosis I've still got, if worse now. But I also got my first kiss off a Mormon kid in front of Bob's Donuts. I'm thinking about these things in the car, rocketing across the same Nevada wasteland where, at 13, my father taught me to drive. It's studded with brothels and unblown-up bomb-testing sites. My guy says, yeah, but you didn't grow up in the real West. The real West. Uh, and this poem has an epigraph from uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, who, of course, is the historian famous for the Turner Frontier thesis about how the West and the Western frontier um, defined and, and formed American democracy. So uh, the epigraph is, the frontier is productive of individualism. The tendency is antisocial. It produces antipathy to control and particularly to any direct control. The tax gatherer is viewed as a representative of oppression. The real West. The guy who sells smoked trout at the farmer's market, he's got a Ph.D. in classics, but he left his professorship for fish farming. I was always interested in history. He smiles, and his white beard bristles, but never politics. This is more my speed. 
cowboys and oil rigs, knowing how to dig a firebreak or mill your flour or prep seed potatoes for planting or pickle beans, knowing where to take the antelope you shot for butchering. Rows of flat, splatted snow bents all along the I-80 corridor, still a blown-out big rig tipped into the ditch. Yucca, aloe, ladies' night at the shooting range, sage. Sitting in steam, rising off the hot springs, snow mounted all around, sipping wine while an eagle hovers above the river, watching for a glint of fish. I walk out of the university auditorium in Billings after the reading drum circle, head back to the hotel with its bucking bronco carpet. The air is acridly sweet. What is that? I ask. Oh, says my host, it's the sugar beet factory. Mutton buster kids at the rodeos, their little aluminum spurs, mobile home meth labs, rows and rows of big gym chilies transubstantiating the sun into heat. Buy them at a roadside stand, roast them over an open flame. They'll go into chili verde, tortilla soup, pizza, quiche, bagels, apple pie, and it'll all have that tangy savor, a little sting in the cheek, the sun inside warming your throat. A church without a cross on it, a church with a cross and a statue of Our Lady, Our Lady of the Desert Passage, Our Lady of the Wildfire, Our Lady of the Snake Oil Salesman, Our Lady Pride of the Penitent, Our Lady of the Snows, Our Lady of the Unknown Variable, Our Lady of the Bird Song, Our Lady of the Beggar's Ball, Our Lady of the Green Glass Sea, a church with a basketball court, a church in a warehouse, signs written in Korean, a church in a shop front, La Iglesia Evangelica, La Iglesia Pentecostal, a double-wide church on a compound comprising bomb shelters, gun racks, and bathtubs planted with tomatoes and mint. A church whose plastic movie times marquee reads, get right or get left. A McDonald's with a smoking section. A church-run charity shop stocked with musty sofas, an armchair with some hard substance caked onto its wing, remote with TVs, bins of bench shoes, bins of teeny kitchen equipment, beveled yellow water glasses, twee teacups. The <coughs> sign on the road that says, Bureau of Land Management, that says trespassers will be shot, that says next services 78 miles. At the coffee shop, a little clutch of hipsters wear their colored tattoos and ear gauges and expensive denim like they'd toss them up. A work-booted dude in a flannel shirt with his sleeves rolled up orders a chai soy latte. You notice his raw knuckles. A taco cart in a Sears parking lot a dim sum cart by the bus station. In a dry arroyo, miles from anything but lizards and scrub, a pair of beat-up Adidas, no laces. A red rock spire, a red rock cliff, windowed with an arch, a butte like a stone ship run ground, Goblin Valley, Virgin River Gorge, Dead Horse Point, Loki Dugway, a canyon path at whose entrance a brass memorial plaque says, this is the place. 
That is Rebecca Lindenberg from the Logan Notebooks. That's the West and the real West. Uh, I, I thought I detected a little bit more California in the West, a little bit more interior Indeed. West in, in, the, in the real West. <laughs> Indeed. And that's often the perception. You've probably run into this growing up in California and then living in Utah that, uh, you know, that's in the interior West, you might call it California is not, not the real West, you know, to some people. Right, right. But certainly, certainly we didn't think that in California. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, there, there's certainly, you know, some very... Very authentic brushstrokes. Uh, Ladies' night at the gun range that resonates, <laughs> for example, <laughs> hey, all in the West. Yeah, fun, yes, yes. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with Rebecca Lindenberg. Our last uh, segment: the Logan Notebooks is the uh, latest uh, collection. More following the break. Tomorrow night, it's an NPR News special. Live coverage of President Obama's final State of the Union address. I'm Audie Cornish. Join me as we hear reaction from Congress, the official Republican response, and in-depth analysis with NPR reporters from the campaign trail in Iowa to the halls of Capitol Hill. It's special coverage of President Obama's last State of the Union address from NPR News. Join us tomorrow night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Oil prices are down. Good for you and me. Not so good, though, if oil is what you're selling. Imports of toilet paper and other products have been really backed up, so to speak. Even food staples, beans, rice, pasta, things that the government controls the price of have become more scarce in recent years. I'm Kai Rizdal. How Venezuela is dealing with sliding crude. The story next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us Monday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with poet Rebecca Lindenberg. We've reached her from Cincinnati. Uh, she is um, teaching at the University of Cincinnati and Queen's University Low Residency MFA program. Her latest book, poetry collection called The Logan Net Notebooks, is winner of the 2015 Utah Book Award. It's published by the Center for Literary Publishing at the Colorado State University, part of the University Press of Colorado. This is part of the Mountain West Poetry Series as well. And it's a remix and reimagining of The Pillow Book by Say Shanagan. Uh, we're talking about uh, place, talking about identity, about language, many other things. And uh, we just have a few minutes here left with uh, Rebecca Lindenberg. Uh, the, we, we've talked about some humorous aspects of the poetry. We've talked about some of the more serious. Um, I want to go back and talk just briefly, if you're okay with that, about your previous collection, Love and Index. Sure. Um, and this is how McSweeney's describes this. This is published in 2012, I believe. Um, a man disappears. The woman who loves him continues to see him everywhere, even after she knows he can never return. I understand uh, you wrote, I guess, the first half while Craig Arnold was, was still alive. Yes, that that's right. I, I started that book in about 2006 um, while I was living in Rome with Craig and... Um, uh, our kid, Craig's son, Robin, um, and uh, I was working on it on and off while I was working on my PhD at the University of Utah and, and had written about the first half of the book, um, and Craig, who was also a, a poet, of course, um, had read much of it and um, liked it, and it was always a book about my family, um, and then with Craig's disappearance, um, of course, the book took kind of a turn and vectored off 
differently than I had imagined it. So um, a lot of the, the second half of the book, especially, um, is, is full of poems that are, you know, they are poems about love and they are poems about loss and, and grief and mystery because Craig disappeared and never was found. But they're also really poems, to my mind, about trying to make a language for making some sense of those experiences as well. And is that is that useful to the poet? Does that help you to to work through? It certainly your, does. Your emotions. Um, I think one of the things that was perhaps most helpful to me, for me as a poet, in the sort of therapeutic way, um, was um, that Craig disappeared and, and passed away very very suddenly, and he and I had this extremely robust. Uh, conversation between us um, about our our lives and our love and our work, and I was not finished with that conversation at all uh, when we lost Craig. And so for me, the book is not so much a book about my partner as it is a book addressed to him. It's my sort of a one-sided phone call, if you will. It's it's the the tail end of my conversation, things that I that I wanted to say to him um, that I hadn't had a chance to do so yet, um, and and it also really did help me to understand the language for grief and the process of of grieving. There's a poem in the end of the book that's called um, "Losing Language," a phrase book um, that's a kind of translation of some of the familiar language we have for grief, like I am so sorry for your loss, into um, things that, that make a kind of personal sense uh, to me. So, so there are lots of different ways in which working, work, turning over a lot of the, the feelings and ideas associated with loss um, were, and the language of loss were, were helpful to the poet in the writing of the book, for sure. Just have a couple of minutes left. I'd, I'd like to end by having you read one of my favorite poems from the current collection. This is called Different Ways of Speaking. Um, oh, yes, of course. I'm glad you like that one. <laughs> this, this is on page five. Uh, I love language, yep. and you're, you're, this is one of the topics of this poem. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, different Ways of Speaking. In Rome, buongiorno bends its knee and flourishes. A little chow is a chirp of friendship, but I kept hearing this word, salve, from hipsters, communists, hail, citizen. I remember the first time someone salveed me from under his sunglasses. I felt so cool. When my parents say roof, it sounds like rough, as in the rough is leaking, or Get down off that rough right now. For God's sake, those wings will never work. Soda, pop, water skimmer, Jesus bug, cart, trolley, stroller, buggy, pram, pacifier or soother or binky or doty or baby cork, standing on line as an imaginary thing drawn there or in line as bowling pins. I offer to babysit our niece. My guy to tend her. I like his version better. 
from the other room, I hear the abadi 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 of cartoon scurrying and Yosemite Sam whistles jumping Jehoshaphat. When a few hours later, a student cries out, Oh my heck, I think of this. Where I come from, a garment is a dress. Where I come from, a temple is where Jews gather on Sabbath, or where Buddhists light incense and turn intricately carved prayer wheels. Om Mane Padme Om. Our neighbor across the cul-de-sac says something about gays in the military, only he does not say gays. Our neighbor says something about alcoholism in the Native American community, only he does not say alcoholism or Native American. In Politics and the English Language, George Orwell says, if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. Salve ragazzi, salve nemici, om mane padme om. Robin comes home from school one day panting. Okay, so I say yellow and you say yellow. But what if what I actually see when I say yellow is what you see when you say blue? And we can never actually know. And I remember the same question blowing my mind. Still does. It's just now I've read some Wittgenstein. You've read some Vixen sound. That gives you some context. Um, we are, <laughs> we're out of time. The book is The Logan Notebooks, well worth the read, and it's, uh, it's out and available uh, from the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. The uh, author is uh, Rebecca Lindenberg. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed myself. Nice to talk to you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Jeremy Hobson. We've heard a lot of rhetoric demonizing people in the presidential campaign. That kind of talk has a long history in America. The dual obsession with immigration on the one hand and terrorism on the other pretty much arrives on American shores with the Puritans. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.